Well, this morning, uh, I want to begin by introducing you to someone. His name is Brad Barnes. And for 13 years, Brad Barnes lived in total darkness. Because from the age of 31 until he was 44, he was completely blind as a result from an accident that happened at work. He worked in a metal factory. He worked with molten aluminum. So you can imagine the heat involved in this process. And he suffered a severe burn, so severe that the doctors he saw told him that he would never see again. But 13 years later, he began working with a team of doctors that had a different opinion. And after two world's first operations at the hands of two different world-class surgeons, the impossible happened. And on March 29, 2007, Brad Barnes received his sight again. And can you imagine how wonderful that must have been? I mean, just to look down, to be able to see himself, to be able to see the light and see the faces and the people around him. He could drive a car. He could have all these responsibilities and privileges that he was used to having that had been taken away. He could initiate a conversation. When you're blind, you can't do that. You have to wait for someone to speak to you. He could appreciate the beauty around him because he could now see again. He could see the whole world aright. And now every subsequent day of his life is going to be different because of that restored sight. And what John is saying here in our text today is that the same thing has happened to us spiritually. That God is light, and when we receive Him, He gives us sight and light and life, and it should dramatically affect how we live every subsequent day of our lives. Well, see, the audience that John was writing to probably similar to ours in that they knew the truth. They knew that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior, but they were failing to see how that belief might affect their daily lives. And they were beginning to grasp at some of the ideas that were floating around in the surrounding culture. They were asking the same question that we often ask. You know, if we profess Christ as Lord, how do we live? See, most Christians understand that they have been redeemed But we forget to ask a pivotal question. Why? Why has has Christ redeemed us? See, once we've been born again, the most important thing to do is to live. Because the gospel doesn't prepare us to die. The gospel prepares us to live. And that's why John is saying that this message has a bearing on every aspect of our lives. I mean, I think we can relate to this because we can articulate what we believe, but we might not be as clear on what bearing that has on our Facebook page. Or maybe how it shapes the way that we speak to non-Christians. We can articulate what we believe, but we don't always see what effect that has on how we speak to our boss or to the people that work for us or about those people when they're not around. Or how we speak to our families or what habits that we develop inside our families. My question is, is our gospel about making it to heaven way down there at the end of the road 
Or is our gospel having effect an effect on our heads, our hearts, and our hands every day of our lives? See, in these verses, John says <clears throat> that the gospel of Christ does have a bearing on every aspect of our lives. And God calls us to walk in the light. How do we do that? Well, to walk in the light, we must learn the truth, we must speak the truth, and we must respond to the truth. As we go down this road of what it looks like to walk in the light, those are the three kind of pit stops we're going to make this morning. And I would encourage you guys just to ask the Lord to speak to you, just to speak one thing to you this morning. You know, if you get distracted or your mind wanders away, as you come back, just ask the Lord, what's one thing this morning that you want me to hear? Well, the first thing we must do if we're going to walk in the light is we must learn the truth. And how do we do that? Well, the same way that followers of Christ have been doing it for centuries, by meditating on the truth. Listen to John's words in verse 5. This is the message. Which one? The one that he saw, that he touched, that he felt personally. That is the message that he is proclaiming. John was speaking to a culture that had a myriad of messages about God just like ours. And we are called to become intimate with this message, just like John did. It must begin with us personally. Think of when God replaced Moses with Joshua. One of the first things he told Joshua Joshua was, this is the book of the law. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it so that you won't turn to the right or to the left. That's how we learn to walk in the light as we soak in God's Word. And we must also learn the truth by practicing the truth. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, verse 6 says, we lie and do not practice the truth. John says it plainly. If we're walking in the darkness, we're not doing the truth, literally in the Greek. We learn how to do the truth publicly by practicing it privately. And the Word of God says, unlike our culture, that our private practices do matter. They matter to God. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 4, when Jesus talks about giving. He says, don't even even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Let your giving be done in secret so that your Father who sees in secret from heaven will reward you. And just a few verses later, Matthew 6, 6, he says a similar thing about praying. When you pray, go up and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees, He will reward you. Just a few verses later about fasting, the same thing. When you fast, don't do it like these people, like the hypocrites. But do it in secret. Do it for God. And your Father who sees, He will reward you. These private practices matter because our public life is a product of our private lives. And in our private lives, we must practice God's Word in order to walk in the light. We also learn the truth by confessing the truth. Why? Well, if for no other reason, simply this. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. This is the distinct mark of the Christian church. If we're going to walk in the light, we're going to have to be a confessing congregation And as we walk in the light, our sin's going to become more visible. And so that's why John reminds us that God is faithful 
and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, and surprisingly, it's the church that needs to hear this. Not the sinners out there, the sinners in here. Because oftentimes we can think all the things that we learn about God get us close to Him. But verses 8 and 9 remind us that knowing about God doesn't necessarily lead to intimacy with Him, but confessing your sins does. If we profess to walk in the light, we must confess the truth. You know, I had a friend, Bill, whose journey with Christ uh, was going fine, but he really wanted to know what it meant to walk in the light and to implement these types of practices every day of his life because he found he was a salesman. He found that he dealt with anger a lot, particularly when he drove on the road, which he did a lot being a salesman. And some of you may be able to identify with that. But a friend suggested that he put this practice, that he adopt this practice, that he would just meditate on a small piece of God's Word. His friend suggested, hey, why don't you just memorize the Jesus prayer? Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Just repeat that to yourself over and over. And so Bill adopted that practice, and he would do that, and he would repeat it and emphasize the different words. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And he would he started to do that 20 times a day, and he found that oftentimes it would lead him to confession. But it was a great practice for him to put into place, put into place in his life. And you know what? It kind of snuck up and came alive on him one day in a most unusual way. He found himself in a sales meeting with some other salesmen, you know, the round wooden table and all the amenities, everybody in their suits. And another salesman was making a presentation, and Bill found himself starting to get angry and feel that anger rise up inside of him because the man giving the presentation was exaggerating things and was fabricating statistics to make himself look good. And Bill knew he was doing it. What do we do in those kinds of situations? Well, before Bill knew what he was doing, he slammed his fist down on the desk and he said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me for what I'm thinking about this man right now. Out loud in the meeting. So you can imagine all heads turned towards him. And guess what? He was just as surprised as they were. But you know what happened? After the man giving the presentation, you know, said, Bill, are you all right? Bill apologized. And the presentation resumed. Guess what? The tenor of the entire meeting changed. There was no more fabrications, no more exaggerations. In fact, the man even went back and corrected something that he had said earlier. Now, I want you to notice that Bill didn't condemn the man for his sin. Instead, he was confessing his own sin. His practice of meditation just kind of snuck up on him. And I don't always expect something so grandiose to happen. But what would it look like for us to cultivate these simple disciplines? I mean, maybe find a breath verse that you could repeat to yourself, like from Psalm 15. Lord, I want to be a man who speaks the truth from his heart. Another verse from Psalm 15. Lord, I want to keep my promises, even when it hurts. Something that you could repeat to yourself and that the Holy Spirit could use 
to alter your life as you soak in it. Maybe you could write on a 3 by 5 card just a couple of verses that you want to keep with you and you can take everywhere with you for a week. I had that with me earlier. I don't know where that went. But um, then whenever you're at a stoplight or in a line somewhere, you could just take it out and glance at it. That way when you're waiting in line somewhere, it could be a moment of communion with God. Maybe you could write it, maybe you could write just one verse in permanent marker on the inside of your shower curtain. And then you'd see it every day, hopefully. Every other day. <laughs> Men, you want to ask your wives before you do that. P.S. <clears throat> and maybe also you could just uh, take the time to pray through Psalm 51 and use it like a confession. Psalm 51 uh, was David's confession to God, and it led to great intimacy between David and God. And it could be the same for us. And I know that we're the church, and that this stuff can seem elementary. But we must learn the truth until it spills out of our heads and our hearts and our hands, just like it did for Bill. If we don't know the truth about God, then we're going to deceive ourselves, as verse 8 says. And guess what? Deceived people deceive people, whether they mean to or not. If I'm trying to tell you how to get from here to Hampstead, and I don't know, because I've never practiced that, that I'm going to mislead you. And how much more harmful in the case of spiritual direction. Let's avoid that by developing practices like meditation, like confession. These are the habits that train us to walk in the light. Well, as we make a habit of personally learning the truth, we must also speak the truth. I mean, we live in this world where we can tell each other so many things because technology allows. It allows us to talk to each other nonstop. You know, we text, we talk, we email, we blog, we Skype, we type, we Twitter. There's probably like six other ways of communication that have come into existence since breakfast. But unfortunately, greater capacity for communication does not lead to greater intimacy. But intimacy is important. Because we see an important connection here between intimacy with God, intimacy with each other, and walking in the light. We foster intimacy by speaking the truth. And how do we do that? Well, we must speak the truth with authority. And if you're like me, you might be uncomfortable with authority. But Jesus wasn't. Think of uh, in Mark one twenty-seven when the people hear him and they say, wow, listen to this man. He speaks as someone with authority. Even the unclean spirits listen to him. In the end of Matthew 7 when he says, uh, the crowds again say, wow, who is this man who teaches with such authority? Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. <clears throat> well, his message is our message. John writes in the Gospel of John that God is light. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not understood it, has not overcome it. And when we speak the truth, we're speaking that light into the darkness with a unique authority because it's His authority. Well, how else do we speak the truth to one another? We must also speak the truth with authenticity. We have the opposite of authenticity in verses 6, 8, and 10. Notice those words, if we say, how they get repeated. If we say this, if we say one thing but we do another, 
if our lips don't match our lives, that's a major problem for the church. You know, as soon as I got back to North Carolina and started doing yard work, I got this terrible case of poison ivy all over the side of my body. And it was awful. And whenever I showed people, I got the same reaction from everyone, either just in their expression or in what they said. But everyone, oh, you know, they just would recoil as soon as they saw it. And I could tell either by what they said or by the way they looked that they were thinking, I, I don't want that. I don't want to touch that. I don't want to get near that because I don't want that. And you know what? That's the way the non-believing world feels when they see hypocrisy in the church. It makes them recoil. It makes them say, I don't want that. But authenticity has the opposite effect. Authentic believers are what the non-Christian world is dying to see. Someone who walks their talk. I'm so thankful for the truth tellers that God has put in my life. Buddy Odom is one of those men. Buddy is a friend of mine who became a mentor of sorts when we worked on Young Life staff together. But even after he stopped working for Young Life and moved on, he would still call me and check on me. And a lot of times he would just leave a uh, verse of scripture on my answering machine. Or he would just say, hey man, I'm just praying for you in this way. And I, I look forward to his uh, sporadic phone calls. And one day, um, and the reason I look forward to it is because he just, he had those characteristics that we're talking about, that authenticity about him. But one day he called in the Young Life office and said, John, how you doing? And as I looked around, I noticed nobody else was in the office. The comfy couch was available. And you know what? I was struggling. And so I sat down and I just unloaded on Buddy. And I said, here are all my problems. Here's all the, all the things that I have to do. Here's the way that all these people are letting me down. And here's, you know, and just, it was terrible. And so after I got done, and I paused and I waited for his consoling comment. He said, John, what's it like being a perfectionist? And I said, now, buddy, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but it sounds like the way you said that, you're calling me a perfectionist. And there was a pause again, and Buddy said, John, I'm just asking you, what's it like being a perfectionist? For the second time, I responded the way I normally respond in the face of authority, with just some nervous laughter. And Buddy said, John, your laughter is a thin veil for your tears. And you know what? He was right. And he continued, and he said, maybe you should journal a little about what it would look like to work for a perfectionist. Do you see your heavenly father as a perfectionist? Well, he had some other great questions. But the ongoing healing of my sin of perfectionism began with that little conversation when Buddy ventured forward to speak the truth with authority into my life. His telling me the truth is helping me become a more authentic person. So my question is, why are these conversations so rare? I mean, maybe we're not that great at telling people the truth. I mean, we're, we're really good at telling people about the truth, 
But maybe we're not as good as telling the truth to one another. But let's learn to speak the truth, because that way when we speak about the truth, we'll do so with authenticity and with authority. Well, what might that look like for us? Well, it might just look like looking at one of your brothers or sisters here in the congregation and saying, hey, it's, uh, we're in a recession right now, in case no one knows. And how are you doing with your limited finances? Is that putting a burden on you? What's, give, me, give me the stress level. Where, where are you? Are you at a 4? Are you at a 7? Are you at a 9.9? My guess is there's some 9.9s in this congregation. And we need to talk about that. Because this is the place where we're going to learn how to walk in the light. I appreciated so much being in the home of one of our friends this week. And the father there asked me, he said, John, what are you doing to prepare Hannah Grace, your seven-year-old daughter? How are you training and preparing her for her vocation? For, for marriage down the road. How are you thinking about that? What, you know, and he just opened up this great dialogue to talk about things that are really important. And, and he also said another thing that has haunted me since Thursday night when we were together. Because he said that, you know, there, there are some men who will never be charged guilty of spending too little time with their kids. Because they do a great job of spending time with their kids. But many men will be held guilty of not just discipling their kids and leading them according to God's Word. I don't want to be one of those fathers. And I'm so glad that he ventured forth to speak about that. See, all of these questions are invitations to shine the light of God's truth into our everyday lives and the lives of people we love. And it happens when we tell each other the truth. This is the authenticity of that the unbelieving world is dying to see in Christians. This is how we learn to speak the truth with authority as we walk in the light. So we must learn to we must learn the truth, we must speak the truth, and we can only do that in light of verses 2:1 and 2:2. We must respond to the truth. John wants his audience to feel the weight of these statements and the importance of walking in the light. And he tells us that he is writing these things so that we may not sin. You see, John knows that sin is the destructive and corruptive force, the destructive and corruptive enemy that we are up against. Not the recession, not the current political regime, not something else out there, but the corruptive, destructive issue is always the same. It's sin, and it's in here. And when we walk in the light, we're going to see that. And guess what? The solution is always the same. His name is Jesus Christ. So John unloads a couple of foundational truths in response to this problem of sin. What are these truths? Well, first, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. There is no other. There is no other that can appease God on our behalf. An advocate is a legal term, a lawyer, someone who pleads the cause of another. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only mediator between God and man. And when we walk in the light, as John is calling us to do, we're going to see our desperate need for him all the more clearly. When Brad Barnes got his sight back, 
He could see when his hair was dirty or when his clothes were dirty. You know, spiritually, the same thing is true for us. When we walk in the light, we're going to realize that there are things in our minds and things in our hearts that are dirty. And that we need an advocate. And we cling to Christ because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. There is no other there is no other who can stand righteous before God according to his or her own merit. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. There is no one righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. Only Jesus Christ. Hebrews talks about how we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in the ways we've been tempted in every way except he's without sin. And that's why John proclaims that he is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins because we need his saving grace to walk in the light. You know, if if you're a paratrooper and you're in your helicopter and you're flying 5,000 feet over the enemy territory and you dive out of that helicopter and you're thinking about your mission and the directions that you have to do in this, uh, the different things that you have to fulfill and all that's on your mind, you know what? If you've forgotten your parachute, none of that's going to matter, okay? That's the one thing you're going to need to remember before anything else, okay? And in the same way, this truth that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that He alone is our Savior, that is the one truth, the one thing we need to remember to make all the rest of what we talked about today possible. Now, John goes on to emphasize the depth and scope of these amazing truths by stating, and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. I know for some of you this statement might be a little confusing because some people have tried to stretch it out to maybe mean something um, bigger than what John intended. And others have tried to limit it because they want it to mean something smaller maybe than John intended. And here's what I would say to that. If you ever have unsettling questions about what we're talking about up here, please come see us and dialogue about it. There's, we would no, love nothing more than that. Or please talk to an elder. Ask an elder. We don't have all the answers, but at least we can point you to some good resources to help you think about these types of questions. But the question I'm going to focus on is the question I think we should all be asking all the time when we read Scripture And that's, what did the original audience make of this? What questions did they have? Those are the questions that should be my questions. How did they hear it? And I would imagine they heard something like this. I would imagine they heard John say that if anyone does sin, that Jesus Christ is the only advocate because his perfectly righteous self-sacrifice is the only atonement for sin. Not just for John, who saw Jesus, who spoke to him, who touched him, who was with him. But for John's audience, too, in a different place, in a different culture. They don't need to look elsewhere. Jesus isn't just another local deity like the other gods in that culture. No, he is God above all gods. And the same is true for us today. We don't need any additions. We're never going to exhaust that well. There is no other There's no other way for any man across the globe, across time, 
be reconciled to God. So that begs the question, how do, how do we appropriate this in our lives? Well, I think we have to ask this question. Are we trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Or are we trusting in Jesus and blank? You fill in the blank. Are we trusting in Jesus and our 401k? Are we trusting in Jesus and our health? Are we trusting in Jesus and some habit that helps us escape? Are we trusting in Jesus and some relationship? Another way to say that is if the relationship or the health or the 401k or the habit, if they went south, would we still be holding on to Jesus Christ? We must practice letting go of all of these things so that we can hold fast to Christ who holds everything together by His power. For only Jesus Christ can be our righteous advocate before the Father, and in Him alone can we walk in the light. Well, prior to his final operation, Brad Barnes told one group of people that his biggest desire in life was to see his wife, who he had never seen. Because in those 13 years of blindness, he had actually gotten married. And now with the help of these doctors, it seemed he might have the opportunity to see his bride for the first time. And on March 29, 2007, After 13 years of living in the dark, he did. Can you imagine how this affected their relationship? Think of the joy and the delight and the increased intimacy that was brought into their relationship. You know, in the same way, walking in the light allows us to see and experience God with a greater level of intimacy. And that's why as John is writing, exhorting us to learn the truth, to speak the truth, to respond to the truth. You know, if Christ Community Church really wants to see Wilmington change, like it says on the bulletin, we're going to have to walk in the light, not just when we're in this building, but in our lives, in the workplace, in the home, at the beach, at school, every day. This truth's got to hold It infected the heads and the hearts and the hands of these first century believers. And it changed the whole world. And in the same way, it can get a hold of us to change Wilmington and our world today. This is why the sermon is entitled, Believing with Your Feet. Because if you get a hold of these these truths, and more importantly, if they get a hold of you, it's going to lead you to walk in the light. And it will affect your life today and every subsequent day. Pray with me. Father, I do pray that our lives would change, that you would transform us. We want to be a people who knows the truth, who speaks the truth, who soaks in the truth. And we want your truth to permeate our lives. Lord, help us to walk in the light and expose the places that we need to, where we need to let go. Expose the things that we need to confess to you. 
Father, uh, we know Jesus Christ is our only hope. So I pray, Father, as we uh, have received him, that we would go and walk in the light. And Father, today as we collect this offering, I pray too that this would be a part of our relationship with you. A part of our left hand not knowing what our right hand is doing. Part of these practices of giving. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.